Amen, amen. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. Glad you're here. Uh, Before we jump into the sermon, I want to go ahead and draw your attention uh, to something that that we've been talking about, uh, a date that we've had on the calendar, September 8th, right? Um, It's a big day for us. It's a big day for us in the life of New City Church. Um, it's, it's, for a few, it's, a, it's a big date for a few reasons. The first, you know, it's been a target date for us uh, as a soft launch. So we've talked about, you know, doing a soft launch. All that really means is this a date for us to work towards to make sure that we're, we're ready to invite people in, right? Um, so that we feel comfortable inviting people to come into our church. That, that, means, that means that we need to have a few things ready. You know, Kid City, our kids space. Uh, it needs to be organized and safe. We want to have good ratios. Uh, we want them to learn something, and we want it to be fun. But uh, it, when you're working with kids, something that we need to know about this, when we're working with kids, we're not babysitting. Right? We, we're training up the next generation for Christ. You're investing in gospel advancement. We're training up gospel arrows to send them out to the ends of the earth, to proclaim the gospel. And we're pr- I mean, we're praying. We're praying for future missionaries and future church planters and God-fearing moms and dads and godly workers to come out of our kids' ministry. When families drop their kids off, we want the kids in our kids' ministry, we want the kids to be begging their parents to bring them back. And also, first impressions, right? People need to be able to find us. We have signs this week, right? Praise the Lord. You can actually find us. That's a big step. We're going in the right direction. We want every single person that walks into this space, we want them to feel welcome. We want them to know that we're ready for them, that we're excited for them to be here. Research shows that when, uh, when people attend a church for the first time, that they know within the first two minutes of the sermon whether they're going to come back for a second time. Before they even get, before they even, before I finish the sermon or really even get going into a sermon, someone's going to know if they're going to come back. So that's why we, that's why we say the sermon starts in the parking lot. Well, I guess we could say the, the parking deck here, maybe, you know. Um, but this is, this is why I said last week, every single person on our launch team is part of the First Impressions team. When, we, when we're outside, at a par- we're not outside standing beside a sign in a hot parking deck, you're not just a greeter, you're a friendly face that's breaking down barriers for, the, for gospel advancement. The gospel is offensive, offensive enough, nothing else should be. Let's be honest, we're not... We're not necessarily in the easiest place to find. Right? You have to kind of know where you're going. Every time I tell someone how to come to our church, I feel like I have to send them a paragraph, instructions of how to get here. But, you know, if you're not serving in kids, you know, if you're not standing in a door, we still want you, we still want you to show up early to a service because when you do that, you, when, when people come in to sit down, there are people here inside to greet them. A person should not, listen, a person should not be able to come into this service without a friendly hello without a warm welcome, without someone saying hello to them, because it matters. Every detail matters. Every detail says, hey, we're ready for you. Every detail. Every detail that we think through is one less barrier to someone hearing and responding to the gospel. Every smile and hello says, we want you here. It says, we want you to know and experience the life-changing power of the gospel. September 8th, it's, it's the day that we've, we've said, hey, we're ready for you. But it's, it's a soft launch because we're not really making a, a big deal about it from a marketing or an outreach perspective. The only way people can know that we're here is if they actually have a relationship with us. 
It's not, a, it's not a day for us to try and convince people to come, but let them come if they want to come. Let them know it's a small group of people and our, and our target launch date is January 26th. Between now and January 26th, our primary responsibility and our primary goal is to build relationships. Your primary responsibility and your primary goal over the next five months is to invest in three to five people who do not know Jesus. That's your primary goal. That, that typically wouldn't be interested in coming to a small church plant. But because you have a relationship with them, because you've invested in them, because you've spent time with them, because you've, you've, you've had a meal with them maybe, just maybe, because you've invested in their life, maybe they'll come. Just maybe. <laughs> on January 26th, we're praying for half of the people that attend New City Church on January 26th to not have any relationship with Jesus Christ. And in order for that to happen, we need to invest in relationships with people who do not know Jesus. It's important. It's essential. This is by far the most important thing that we do. This is why you moved your life here. This is why we sold houses, left jobs, left families, left what is comfortable, so that those who are far from God will encounter the gospel, will see the greatness of God, and put their hope and trust in a God that we love. That's why we're here. Three to five people. Three to five relationships. When you, when you think, like, who from our team can we kind of hang out with? Maybe we need to start thinking or even starting to transition to a different way of thought, transitioning to thinking, you know, I'll see them on Sunday or I'll see them at group on Wednesday or Sunday. Who can I hang out with that doesn't know Jesus? Who can I hang out with that is not walking with Christ? If, if, now listen, if you're struggling, if, if you need help, you need encouragement, yes, please reach out. I mean, we are a community of people that we want to spend life together. Right? We want to show the gospel to one another. We want to love one another. We need to balance this well. But over the next five months, pray and invest and beg God to save three to five people. God has strategically placed you in your neighborhood, your house, your job, your kid's school. Invest wisely and then let's beg God to move. Amen? And on January 26th, let's pray for complete life transformation, so much so that when people come, when people get into the waters of baptism, on January 26th, we'll see, we'll see lives changed. That's something that we can get excited about. We want to we invite everyone to come and see. Between now and January, our focus is to go and tell. But on January 26th, we want people to come and see who God is. So they would know who Christ is. And so they would know what Christ has done for them. I'm excited about the possibility of what God could do over the next five months. But it's not going to be without hard work. Right? It's not going to come without investing, without laboring, without pleading for God to move. With that said, there's another reason September 8th is a, is a big day for us. It's because we're starting a new sermon series in 2 Timothy. It's going to be called Multiply. The focus of this series is on discipleship and multiplication. It's advancing the gospel. What does it take? What does it take? If the vision of New City Church is to see lives changed and to reach the world, what's it going to take to make that happen? Our vision doesn't end when people enter the waters of baptism. Our vision is to see people enter the water, to see their life radically changed, so much so their entire life will be surrendered to Jesus, so that when God calls them to strategically move their life for the mission of God, it's an easy no-brainer. 
We're begging God to see entire lives transformed by the gospel, that people would joyfully give up comfort and wealth and jobs and relationship, whatever it takes to see the gospel advance. We have news that is so good that the entire world must hear. So when we look at 2 Timothy, we see a method for how this works, how the gospel, how the gospel multiplies. Now we're, we're praying for an unmistakable movement of God. God has said in Matthew, the very end of Matthew, all, all power and authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. And over the next five months, we must invest in God's mission and we must do it according to God's method. So 2 Timothy is coming and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about it. So would you be praying and begging God to prepare our hearts for September 8th? And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. We must be a people that are committed to begging God in prayer. Any fruit that we see, it's going to come from the Lord. Would you take time this week? Would you take time this week to get on your knees and start begging God and pleading God to move so that he may save some? Before we jump any further, before we jump into Psalm 35, I'm going to stop and pray. Uh, and then we'll, go, we'll keep going. So, Father, we are expectant. Father, you have called us to a great mission. You've called us to a great task. You've called us to make disciples. You've called us to see the gospel advance, to see the gospel multiply. Father, we pray that we would be expecting you to move and that we would invest and we would see, uh, see you do amazing work. Father, we love you. We need you. We ask for your help today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I just took up my time for an intro into Psalm 35. So in, to encourage you, um, I, I told Chris Gaynor, who preached here last week, um, I told him we were preaching through the Psalms. Um, he looked at Psalm 35, uh, <laughs> you know, I, and he was like, nope, I'm not doing that. Uh, nope, not doing it. And so he preached Psalm 46 instead. I think we're all really thankful that he did. Um, we were... <laughs> You know, Chris was such a blessing for us last week. One of the greatest encouragements for me is to see someone who has been walking with God for 20 plus, 30 plus years and is more zealous today than he was 25 years ago, right? He's zealous for God's mission, zealous to know God, and zealous to be with God, and I pray that would be true of all of us. So, Psalm 35, here we go. This is a very hard shift, so brace with me, bear with me, brace yourself, if I had to describe Psalm 35 in one word, it would be bitter. Bitter. So David is clearly bitter. You feel that shift? He's discouraged. He wants vengeance on his enemies. So that's our psalm for today. I'll say this about it. It's not exactly the psalm uh, that you want to read at your little girl's tea party, you know, or the one that you're going to find on a, on a, on a coffee cup maybe. Uh, with that said, I, I still think we can find encouragement from this psalm, but at first glance, it really is a difficult psalm. Um, but there are small glimmers of hope that I want, that I want us to see, and we're going to see those towards the very end, that I, that I think can be a great encouragement to us. Now, I'm going to read through this entire psalm. Now, it's long, okay? So bear with me. Now, I, I know that many of us have had times in our lives when we could relate to this psalm, though, as well. You know, I want to address the raw emotion of the psalm, and I want to spend most of our time on how the gospel completely changes this psalm, okay? And, on the, and then on those little glimmers of hope, and we're going we're gonna to be all over the Bible today, so try and hang with me. Here's our simple outline before we get going. 
It's a plea, a new direction, and a glimmer of hope. So like I said, this psalm is raw. David is hurting. He's grieving. He's bitter. He's angry. He wants justice. But these little glimmers of hope, see if you can catch them throughout Psalm 35, because these small glimpses of hope, they're part of the vision for our church. It feeds in what we want to see God do here in Tampa. So with that said, let's read Psalm 35. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net from me. Without cause they dug a pit for me. Let destruction come upon him when he, when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it, to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went as though I grieved for my friend or my brother, as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in the morning, but at my stumbling they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. Let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent, O Lord. Be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself from my vindication, from my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my righteousness according to your righteousness. And let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let him be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with a shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and you'll be praised all the day long. So, after I, after I first read this psalm, and I looked at the heading, and it, it says, Great is the Lord. I thought it should say David is bitter. Um, David wants revenge, but that's not what it says. Uh, I had the same thought when, when, Chris, when Chris read it. Um, and I was like, well, maybe we should skip this. Uh, then I kept reading it and reading it and reading it. He still felt bitter. He still felt angry. Um, it's like I wanted the words to change. So this is why preaching through books of the Bible is so important. 
um, because it makes us deal with hard stuff. And don't get me wrong, there's, there's some great truths in this psalm that give us a lot of hope and affect the way we can do ministry. When Jesus comes onto the scene in the New Testament, he completely turns this psalm upside down and he gives us a new direction. But before we go there, we must first address this psalm at face value, which is our first point, a plea. So specifically David's plea for justice, okay? Revenge. This entire psalm, David is crying out for help. David has been wronged, and he wants God to seek revenge on those who have wronged him, okay? We really don't know what specific event David is crying out um, from, but this week, when, my own, uh, when I was going through reading the Bible on my own, I, I was, came up to 1 Kings, and it was kind of the transition of power from David to Solomon, um, and knowing and thinking in the back of my head that, you know, what, what David was talking about in Psalm 35 um, I just kind of was thinking about that. And when I started reading 1 Kings, David's on his deathbed, okay? Uh, and what David says right before he, before he dies, it really, it really caught me off guard here. And I don't, I don't know if these are events that caused David to write Psalm 35. He, he was on his deathbed, so he probably didn't write this after this event. So uh, no commentary said anything about this. So it could be, you know, but it wouldn't be surprised if they were related, Regardless, regardless of anything, the thought and the emotions are the same, okay? On David's deathbed, he's speaking his last words to Solomon. It's a great moment, super encouraging. He's calling him to walk in the way of the Lord. And then 1 Kings 2, in verses 5 to 9, David tells Solomon to go and kill these two men on his deathbed, Joab and Shammai. They, were both, they both wronged David specifically. And David... David basically told his son Solomon to go and seek revenge against these two guys. 1 Kings 2.6, this is what he said. He said, act according to your wisdom, but not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Saying, don't let them die in peace. Give Joab trouble. Give him what he deserves. And then in verse 9 about Shammai, he says, you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. So David's on his deathbed making uh, death threats. This is like old man trash talk at its finest. And he's like, I thought it was kind of funny. He's talking about gray hair and having, you know, just kind of, you know, just talking about each other's hair while he's dying. And how they, you know, just, he said, shall bring his gray head down with Sheol. I just thought that was kind of funny. So whatever's going on behind the scenes in Psalm 35, there's no doubt about it. David took that same bitterness to his grave. He was seeking revenge on his deathbed. David in Psalm 35, he wants revenge and justice. Listen to, listen to what David says in Psalm 35 again. In verse 3, he's crying out to God. He says, draw the spear and the javelin against my pursuer. Verse 4, let him be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed. Verse 5, let them be like chaff before the wind. Basically, like, let them be like garbage or waste. Verse 6, let their way be dark and slippery. I mean, I could keep going because this is the entire psalm. But one of the things I want to point out is that there's a good chance that many of us have felt the exact same way that David has felt. We've been wronged, mistreated, had our bats stabbed, felt ignored, felt like nobody was with us, like our back is against the wall, and pleading for God to help, wanting revenge, pleading for justice. I don't know what it is for you. I have no idea. Maybe it's a friend, a family member, a boss, a coworker, a teacher, a coach, a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. 
But I'm sh- I'm, I don't know what it is, but I'm sure at some point in your life, you've been wronged in some way. Sure of it. And you've experienced anger and frustration, and you have desperately wanted revenge. If it's not revenge, you've wanted the wrong to be made right. You've cried out to God saying, that's not fair. God, make it fair. Now, I don't want to stand here and tell you to follow David's example. Because we know on David's deathbed, he took these same emotions, these same thoughts with him to the grave. Now, I want to beg and plead with you, do not be like David. You can't carry anger and hate and bitterness with you. Don't be like David. David felt the weight of this psalm his entire life. He took it with him on his deathbed. What I want you to see today is that Jesus comes onto the scene and he completely flips this psalm upside down. Apart from Christ, there is no hope in this psalm. Now there's glimmers of hope, small glimpses, and we'll get to those in a little bit, but if Christ doesn't come onto the scene, this psalm is very bleak and it's very depressing, which brings us to our second point, a new direction. You've probably seen this type of thing um, happen in your life, right? You've you learn something new, and it completely changes the way you look at something. You know, like for the first time, you learn what's inside of a hot dog, right? It, it changes the way you approach that hot dog. But then, like, like good Americans that we are, we eat it anyways, right? Uh, or when, like a, when a star team, when they add a player, like a, like a star player to their team, you know, all of a sudden, they're the new favorites to win a championship. It completely changes the way a team is viewed. Now, my son, uh, he was three. When he was three, he was terrified of the Chick-fil-A cow. Completely terrified. It's like, I mean, it's kind of like cartoons meet reality, you know? Every, I mean, just think about cartoons in kids' books. Pigs flying, talking animals that turn into monsters and superheroes. Now, when Stockton looked at a Chick-fil-A cow... He feels like this cow is going to take off and start flying or possibly eat him alive. But back in January, he turned four. Now, my brother-in-law, he manages a Chick-fil-A. And Stockton's family birthday party was at a Chick-fil-A. What happens at Chick-fil-A birthday parties? The cow comes out. Stockton sees the cow, and this cow starts walking directly towards him, the birthday boy, Okay. He's trembling, he's screaming, he's hiding behind me, he's latched on me for life, and then the kid is terrified, and I bend over to whisper into his ear, I'm like, hey, it's Uncle Brian. Uncle Brian is inside the cow. And Uncle Brian, from inside the cow, he whispers, he whispers at him, he says, hey, buddy, it's me. It's your Uncle Brian. So... Stockton starts to kind of warm up to it a little bit. He smiles. This cow is no longer terrifying to him. You know, he starts poking at it a little bit, pulling the tail, you know, starts smiling at it. Meanwhile, his cousins are like kicking the cow, chasing the cow in circles, yanking the cow, right? Yanking the tail on the cow, laughing hysterically because they now know that their Uncle Brian is inside of this cow. You see, everything changed with new information. It all changed. Everything went into a new direction. That's exactly what happened when Jesus came onto the scene. He came in, he gave 
his people a different way, a new direction. Here at New City Church, uh, we look at every passage through the lens of the gospel because the gospel changes everything. We know that Jesus is inside of every passage whispering at us saying, Hey, buddy, it's me. I'm here. I'm here. And Jesus came. When Jesus came onto the scene, he changed the way that we look at this song. He changed the way the entire, we look at the entire Old Testament. That Jesus is the, the hero of every story, of every psalm. He takes this psalm and he completely turns it upside down. Flips it and it's on its head. Check this out at the very beginning of Matthew, the book of Matthew. Now remember in the book of Matthew, he's talking to people who like know their Old Testament really well. Um, he, you know, they, they, know, they know David, they know about the Psalms, they know Psalm 35. And Jesus calls his 12 disciples in the book of Matthew, and he takes them up to the top of the mountain. This is like their first lesson from Jesus, okay? The first teaching from Jesus, and it's also known as the Sermon on the Mount. So what does he teach them? He teaches them how to have a blessed life. And he, what he does is he completely turns their world upside down and teaches them about the kingdom of God. And it changes everything they've known in the past. They knew, they knew David. They knew their Old Testament. They, the revenge that David sought after, right? Well, Jesus gives them a new way and a new direction. In Matthew 5.10... He talks, he's talking about the blessed life. He says, Blessed are, are those who persecuted you, who, persecute, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's honorable, right? It's hard, but it's honorable. And then, then the very last one, Jesus says in verses 11 and 12 in Matthew, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. you Did you hear that? He says, those who revile you, those who utter evil against you, Jesus says to rejoice and be glad. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm angry, when someone has wronged me, Psalm 35 feels a little bit more in line with what I'm thinking. I'm like, God, go get him, God, right? God's going to get you. But no, Jesus says rejoice and be glad. And then while he's still up there on top of that mountain, it's the same sermon Jesus says in, in, in verse 39 later on. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sure you, would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And then he keeps going in verse 43. Jesus tells them to love their enemies. You see what I mean here? Like Jesus takes... What, and what takes Psalm 35, and he completely turns it upside down. David was calling for the javelin and the spear, calling for them to be shamed and dishonored, and God to deal with them like garbage. This is everything that they've been taught, that God would defend their cause, which is still true. But then Jesus comes onto the scene, and you can almost feel the gasp that comes out. It's like they need to take their mouths up off the ground because of what Jesus has just said. So he's telling, so, so you're telling me, if someone does me wrong, 
I'm supposed to personally rejoice and be glad. And then continue to take more wrong from them by turning the other cheek. And then actively seek to show them love. Jesus is like, yep, that's right. But this isn't a one-time thing. The same concept comes up multiple times in the New Testament. Paul in the book of Romans. Paul's just laid out a very in-depth theological treatise that we have as Christians explaining justification by faith and righteousness and justice and God's sovereignty. And then Romans 12, he gives us a, he gives us a great big therefore. Like all of these things are going on. But because of everything I just told you, now this is how you should live. In the heading of my Bible, in the book of, in front of Romans 12, it says, marks of a true Christian. You know, it says, like, love one another, stay away from evil, show one another honor, be zealous, serve the Lord. We're tracking along with him. It all seems well. K-love is kind of played in the background, you know. We're happy. And then this is what Paul says in Romans 12, 14 to 21. Romans, this is what it says. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight, repay, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, this isn't exactly what David is uh, asking for in Psalm 35. Whenever, and whenever we see something that's interesting like this in the Bible... It should cause us to, to think and ask questions, to, to seek to learn more, because, you know, the tendency is to think, hey, this is just a little crazy, and just ignore it. Or we just do it, and we don't really understand why, right, to seek to love our enemies. But on the inside, we're really feeling like David in Psalm 35. We have to ask ourselves, why in the world would Jesus make such a radical change? Why would he call Christians to such a different way of life, to something that is so difficult, to rejoice at our wrongdoings, to turn the other cheek, to actively love our enemies, to feed them, to give them water, as Paul, as Rome, as Paul in Romans 12 says. Paul essentially says, if your enemies have needs, provide their needs. That's not like our friends. That's our enemies. Like, provide the needs of the, in, of the enemies. It just seems crazy. Let's look at this a little further. There are two specific reasons... For, what, for this that we see in the Bible. I told you we're going to be all over the Bible today. In John 15, Jesus actually quotes Psalm 35. He quotes Psalm 35, 19. He says, Jesus said, as David said, he said, they hated me without cause. And then right before John 15, in John 15, 18 to 22, Jesus tells his disciples, it's up on the screen, if, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do on my account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to him, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. We can get to the same point coming from every single passage that we've already talked about. I'm not going to go back through all of them. The first, the first reason Jesus call, calls us to love our enemies is because we love our enemies because Jesus showed love to his enemies. We love our enemies because Jesus showed love to his enemies. We can't forget that apart from Christ, we were enemies of God. Because of our sin and rebellion, because we were far from God, and because it's in our very nature, God could not deal with us. We were despicable to the sight of God. The Bible says we were once strangers and alienated, far from God, had no hope, children of wrath. But because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, because of his life, death, and resurrection, we put our trust in Christ, we're no longer enemies of God. But through the cross, we become beloved children of God. So why in the world would we love our enemies, those that have wronged us? Because Jesus loved us when we were his enemies. We love our enemies. We are becoming more like Christ. When people say they want to be more like Jesus, they need to know that it comes with a difficult task, and that's to love our enemies, to provide the needs of those who have wronged us. Now, we can actively rejoice and be glad. We can actively rejoice and be blessed when we love those who revile against us because the only way we can do that is if we're remembering what God has done for us in the gospel. God showed his love for us at the cross when we reviled against him. We have the privilege to show God's love to others when they revile against us. When we go through the hardship against the world, there's something special that happens. There's, there's a greater intimacy that can be grasped with our relationship with God. We have a greater understanding of what God has done for us. This gives greater fellowship with God, greater thankfulness in the gospel. If we can, if we can lead, it can lead us to rejoice in great joy. It can lead us to greater intimacy with God. When we can rejoice and actually love those who have wronged us, it's evidence that God is working in our hearts. It's evidence that the Spirit of God is living inside of us. It's evidence that the hope is found in something outside of ourself. It says something to the world that's around us. It pricks at the hearts of those who have reviled against us. It shows those who have reviled against us, who, have, who are speaking against us, it shows that there's something different inside of us. Brings us to the second reason to why God would call us to love our enemies. Loving our enemies bears witness to Christ. Almost every single passage I brought up earlier that talked about turning the other cheek, loving your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, every one of them is surrounded with the concept of bearing witness to the world. The Sermon on the Mount. It shows that we're to be, right after that, it talks about being a salt and light to the world. In John 15, right after he quotes Psalm 35 about being hated without cause. Jesus says, I will send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. And then he says, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness. So why should we rejoice and be glad when we're hated without a cause? When others are mean to us, when others wrong us, when we're not treated fairly? Because it's an opportunity to show the world the greatness of God. 
It's an opportunity to put the gospel on display, to show that something is different inside of us. When, when we were serving in Central Asia, uh, I saw this, I, we heard a testimony um, of this put on full display. What I'm about to tell you, it seems very radical here, but this is, these things happen all over the world. So there was a, a professional boxer. We served with this guy. He was helping at the school that we were out. We'll call, today we'll call him Rocco. When he became a Christian, and we, his, it made his family very, very mad. So much so that his father took him and put, him, put his head down on a chopping block and said to his son, reject Christ or die. And he did not try to fight his dad. He did not reject Christ. He told his dad on the block, he said, no, Jesus is my God and Savior. And his father saw this. He saw his, his son's faith, and he, he dropped the knife, and he started weeping. He broke down, and he wept. This is, this is just one example that shows when we turn the other cheek, when we show that our faith is truly put in Christ, we don't retaliate, we don't seek revenge, and we, don't act, and we actively love our enemies. It's one of the great, greatest witnesses that we can have as Christians because it makes absolutely no sense to the world. And it puts the gospel on display. And when we realize what we have in the gospel, that Christ came to redeem our bitterness, redeem our anger, and our ultimate protector to be our, you know, when Christ came to be our ultimate protector against the ultimate enemy, we, we realize that Christ came not to retaliate against our enemies, but he came to save us so that we don't have to be his enemies. We realize that we have a much greater hope, a new direction. We realize that we stand on Christ, not on what others do to us. Listen, we don't have to beg God to bring the spear and the javelin on those who have wronged us. We don't have to ask God to shame them and dishonor them like David cried out for in Psalm 35. And you know, even if we're not asking God for that, but we're, we're still having these underlying hopes that God will do it anyways, we don't have to be enslaved to that. Listen, Jesus did not come holding the spear that David hoped for in Psalm 35. Jesus was pierced by the spear so he could hold us. In Christ, when we trust him and when we follow him, we are completely redeemed. We no longer have to be enslaved to bitterness, to jealousy, to anger. Listen, if you have been wronged, not if you are wronged, but when you are wronged, when a coworker or a boss or a neighbor or a friend or a person at school or a family member or someone here on our team, someone wrongs you, we get the privilege to put the gospel on display and to turn the other cheek and then to actively love them, to show them grace, to give them what they don't deserve. We can show them what Christ has done for us. We deserve the spear, but Christ took the spear for us. That's grace. Now, I want to go back in Psalm 35 because I said there was a little bit of a glimmer of hope. Psalm 35 has 28 verses, okay? There are about three verses that give us a breath of fresh air. And I, I told you when I looked at this psalm, I read it over and over again, praying that somehow these words would change. And then I noticed something, which is, brings us to our third point, a glimmer of hope. Almost the entire psalm is focused on what they did or how he was wronged. Over and over again, he says, let them, let them, 
Let them be like a chaff. Let them. Let the destruction come upon them. Or, but I, I wore sackcloth. God, if you do this, then I will rejoice. But I, me, my. I mean, he just goes over and over again. The entire psalm is about them or me. But then there are these two truths that come out about God and who, he's in, and who he is. They're glimmers of hope. Look what David says about God in verse 10. It says, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him? And then in verse 27, David says, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. David is recalling what he knows to be true about God. That God has a heart for the poor and needy. That God wants the good of his people. That God wants what's best for his people. He's for his people, specifically those who are poor and needy. It's not just the materially poor and needy, but also the spiritually poor and needy. David is calling God to help him in his spiritual poverty because he's seen God move through physical poverty. This is the glimmer of hope. David is able, in the midst of his spiritual downward cycle, to get a glimpse of hope because he's seen others care for the poor and needy. Caring for those who are physically poor and needy is outwardly putting on display what God has done for those who are spiritually poor and needy. It's a sign of something much greater. Listen, caring for the poor and needy is not our hope. That is not our mission. This is a response to what God has done for us. We care for the poor and needy because God has cared for the spiritually poor and needy in the gospel. Caring for the poor and needy is a sign of the coming kingdom. It's a picture of what is to come. It points people to what is true in the gospel, that we have nothing, but Christ has everything. We are spiritually bankrupt, yet in Christ we have an eternal royal inheritance. Caring for the poor and needy shows that we live for a different world. We don't live for this world with earthly possessions and materialism, but rather we live for the city that is to come. This is why New City Church has a significant emphasis on the poor, the orphan, the widow, the unwed mother, and the refugee. In one sense, we do it because the Bible calls us to do it. But even more so, the Bible calls us to do it because it proclaims to the world that this world is not our home. We don't invest in ourselves. We invest in the kingdom of God. And in the economy of God's kingdom... God says, as David has said in Psalm 35, he says, God delights in the welfare of his servants. And do you know how God cares for the welfare of his servants? It's through his people. When we are caring for others, when we care for the poor and needy, we're being the hands and feet of Jesus. Listen, this should shock us. This should grieve us. But not as people without hope. Because in Tampa alone, there are more children in the foster care system than there are families to foster them. There is no support for children who age out of foster care at age 18. One in four kids who age out of the foster care system either become an exotic dancer or are trafficked. That's alarming. 
But just imagine with me for a second, what would it look like if each of us did for one what we wish we could do for many? Just pick one. One person who is materially poor, who can't feed their family, who doesn't have a place to live. Maybe they're homeless. Maybe they're struggling. Do for one what we wish we could do for many. Or maybe God has called you in some way to care for one orphan. Maybe it's to foster. Maybe it's to adopt. Maybe it's to care for one of those 18-year-olds who come out of the foster care system. Do for one that we wish we could do for many. Or maybe God has called you to care for a widow. Someone who is grieving over the loss of their spouse. Do for one that we wish we could do for many. Maybe God has called you to the unwed mother, teen moms, single moms, moms that are struggling to get by without a dad in the home. Do for one that we wish we could do for many. Or maybe God has called you to care for the refugee. Someone who has been displaced, that was kicked out of their home, fleeing for safety. Maybe you could be the person that points them to their ultimate refuge in Christ. While providing and caring for their practical and physical needs, do for one that we wish we could do for many. I don't know what God has called you to do, but would you begin to pray about it? Would you begin to beg God to show you what it is? Would you pray for open doors and opportunities? David in Psalm 35, he was bitter and he was angry. There are people all around us that are bitter and angry, searching for hope. We have a great truth that reminds us that Jesus came onto the scene and turned something bitter into something that was sweet. This entire psalm pointed at David and those who wronged David. Jesus came to point us to something much greater. Jesus points to the coming kingdom. All of this comes full circle because when we're wronged and we turn the other cheek and we don't retaliate and we don't seek revenge and we care for the poor and needy, we're pointing and showing those around us that we live for another world. I want to close with this. This isn't like a boring Christianity. This is the Christianity that Jesus came to die for. It's a Christianity that points to Christ as our ultimate hope, that sees Jesus on the cross as enough, that understands that Jesus already took at the cross what those who have wronged us deserve. When we show the world our hope, when we turn the other cheek, and when we care for the poor and the needy, this is what God has called us to as Christians. And this is what we hope that those around us in Tampa Bay will see and encounter. Because the gospel demands it. It's our response to what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we, we need you. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for what you have done for us. Father, we pray that we would be a people that cry out to God. That are calling upon the Savior that we love that are calling out to help in the midst of a very difficult time, that when we are going through challenging circumstances, we can call out to the God that we love who is there for us, helping us, pleading for us on our behalf, that cares for us, that loves us. Father, you have cared for us as poor and needy. We pray that we would be able to care for others that are also poor and needy. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.